Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton. I work with Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant, and I know a lot about the feeling where you ride your bike into work, planning to go out to dinner with a new department head, all excited about that, and realize that you left your bike lock at home, so now you have to decide whether or not to ride all the way back home before going to dinner, or to ride to Target and get a cheap bike lock and spend the whole dinner warning, wondering if your bike is going to be stolen or not. <laughs> but I don't know a lot about the Great Lakes, and so that's the point of this uh, podcast. I'm joined today by the one, the only, the special Megan Gunn. Megan, what's up? <laughs> Nothing much, Stuart. I'm excited for sunshine and being back on the podcast after taking a long hiatus. Yes. Um, too long. Your hiatus was too, too long. long. Yeah. Well, we're super pumped to have you back. That is definitely true. And fired up in action. Um, And so, you know, I think today, let's just jump right into it. um, there was an issue. I'll give a little background and then we'll do the thing. But um, so there were I always actually we just had a paper that's about to come out in the Journal of Great Lakes Research that I was working on with a postdoc, Becca Nixon, um, and another colleague of mine, Xiao Ma. And Becca led this whole deal, but but it got accepted. And then once your paper gets accepted, what you do is you refresh the journal page every 90 to 120 seconds. <laughs> To see if it's up there yet, um, because it's still fun to see your name in print. And so I was doing that, refreshing like mad. I've got, you know, refreshal tunnel syndrome or whatever on my finger. <laughs> and I saw a really neat paper um, in the journal that had nothing to do with what we were we were talking about. Um, um, the paper's called um, Drawing on Anishinaabek Knowledge to Protect Water. It was talking about like this water protection plan being developed in the White R- Whitefish River First Nation up in uh, uh, northern Ontario, in Ontario. And, and I thought this was really neat and touches on a lot of things I wanted to talk to. So I reached out to the, the, the author. Her name is Laura Lee McGregor. And um, she was kind enough to come on. So I'm really fired up about this uh, interview. Me too. I am so excited, especially because I've been, I've been thinking a lot, not like in the last year or so, but especially in the last couple of weeks, like how Indigenous peoples survived in the environment for thousands and thousands of years without conflict. And so what can I do, having grown up in this this Western world, what can I do now as a single person to better interact with the environment? Yeah. Because like you have these individuals that are doing things, but us as individuals, like we make a big difference. And so no, I agree. Lots of thoughts. Yeah. Well, anyway, I think it's a great conversation, or I would think it if we had had it already. But since we're recording this beforehand, of course, I imagine it will be <laughs> a great conversation. And um, I, I imagine that I'm look, looking forward to hearing it. Our guest today is Dr. Laura Lee McGregor. She's an assistant professor of indigenous health at the Northern Ontario School of Medicine, which I'm happy to report is Canada's first independent school of medicine. Uh, Laura Lee, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Great. So where is that anyway? Where is uh, Northern Ontario? So I'll be honest. I don't know a lot about Canada other than what I've learned from Carolyn. And so when I hear (laughs) Northern anything in Canada, I'm thinking it's in the middle of not a lot. Uh, Is that fair about the Northern Ontario School of Medicine? Well, actually, the School of Medicine is located in Sudbury, Ontario. And if you were looking at a map of Ontario, you would see that it's actually not in the northern part of the province. I would say, you know, if I was looking at a map, I would say it's kind of actually maybe in the middle of the province. Um, But when people give names to places, it's all based on 
you know, urban centric. So anything north of Toronto is north, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I have some friends in New York uh, State and the debate over where upstate is. Uh, yeah, anything north of New York City is upstate New York, at least according to people in New York. Fair enough. Fair enough. So you're not too. So is, it, is Sudbury, is it like a, a lot of people there? Or is it kind of Sudbury, the greater Sudbury area, the population is about 130,000. So not heavily populated. Um, but that includes, um, they used to be their towns on their own, but everything got amalgamated. I forget when that happened in the 1990s, maybe. But uh, So it's quite spread out. So Sudbury is quite spread out. Um, but it's one of the largest urban centers in um this area i'll say you know i want to say northern ontario but it's really not northern ontario <laughs> really not northern ontario <laughs> well the folks from who are actually from northern ontario would be like that ain't northern ontario <laughs> <laughs> but i'm i'm uh i don't actually live in sudbury i used to live in sudbury when my daughter was going to high school there but i actually live um in my home community of whitefish river first nation which is about an hour and uh, 10, 15 minutes from Sudbury. So I don't live in, the, I don't live in the sud in the city anymore. I, I live in the, I live in the sticks on the res. <laughs> That's great. Do you have to go in to teach then, or is it all virtual because of COVID stuff or how's that work? Um, it has been virtual for the past two years, but uh, since February we're back in person. So, um, but I don't teach every day. We have just a very unique kind of, um, teaching module we do we teach in modules and the module that I'm primarily responsible for and teach quite a bit in is coming up it's starting in uh, at the end of this month so I'll be there much more frequently than I have been but you know the bad weather and you know snow days and icy and freezing rain is kind of mostly over mostly so I don't uh, the travel's not too bad it's nothing when you live when you live in rural areas like a hour and 10 minute drive is like it's nothing. <laughs> One thing I love about West Lafayette is we don't have that. We have uh, it's it's so we have about the same number of people. We're probably in the greater Lafayette area, probably 150k, something like that. And uh, but but I have a I, a 14 minute bike ride in, um, and so it's nice. Especially now I got this electric bike, which I talk about every third episode, so I won't talk about it now. <laughs> yeah, when I used to live in Sudbury, I lived close enough to either bike or or uh, walk to uh, to school, but. Um... That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen right now. No, I imagine it's nice to be back out in the sticks, though, too. So the, the Whitefish River First Nation, uh, tell me a little bit about this. So this is an, an indigenous community in that area, right? Um, is that, uh, was it, you know, have y'all been, have they been there, you know, uh, for time immemorial? Or what's the history of, of them in the area? So I would say time immemorial. I mean, we do have our creation stories that talk about, you know, um, not exactly when we got to this area but um essentially the, there's a phrase we would say in in our language me uh, which is like a long time ago um people actually came from the east that's in our our creation story but we've been in this area for thousands of years there's archaeological evidence for us to being here i think 10 to 12,000 years so that's incredible. um yeah, so Whitefish River First Nation, it's um, one of seven First Nations that are uh, part of the Manitoulin First Nations. For those who are somewhat familiar with geography in Ontario, so I live very close to Manitoulin Island. So Manitoulin Island is quite well known in Ontario. It's um, one of the, I think it's the largest freshwater island in the world. No kidding. Yeah, 
it's uh, like to drive from one end to the other would probably take you at least three hours. Wow. Hours. Mm hmm. And so there are um, communities that we believe where, you know, we're, we're affiliated with. We, there's lots of relationships through marriage and things like that among the communities. But my community of Whitefish River is not technically on Manitoulin Island. We're basically where would be kind of like on the peninsula or no, it's whatever, some kind of geographic body form that connects <laughs> the, the island to the mainland. And um, so we're surrounded. Um, so Manitoulin Island is located within uh, Lake Huron, Georgian Bay. Um, and so we're connected to both um, on the west, uh, there's a large body of water called the Bay of Islands. And to the east is McGregor Bay, which is actually where I'm looking out into over uh, McGregor Bay right now. Wow. And yes, it is named after my family. Really? That was <laughs> going to be my next question. <laughs> there's a long story there. Well, it was um, it was a Scottish trader named Alexander McGregor who uh, he had a trading post um, in this area in the uh, I want to say probably the early 1800s. And so he um, he married one of Chief Shawanasaway's daughters. And then, um, I, I mean, that happened quite a bit in that during that time period. Uh, traders like that would, not saying that there wasn't any love, but it was like very strategic relationships, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's where the McGregor name comes from. Because sometimes people go like, you're indigenous and your last name is McGregor. Well, that doesn't like make sense. And I'm like, that's true. It's not a traditional indigenous uh, uh, surname, is it? You know, no. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, that's that's the story of huh. of uh, why McGregor. Well, that is interesting. And I, I'm looking at pictures now on the internet, and this place is beautiful. <laughs> so uh, I'm now envious. Um, we have uh, it's it's very well known. Like we have actually a lot of. Um, folks from the states who have cottages in this area there's um uh into mcgregor bay and bay of finn we have the, there's yachts in there all the time in the summer so it's 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 pretty it's pretty nice here it's pretty yep. yeah, yeah it looks stunning frankly i don't actually own a yacht but um if i were to <laughs> I would take it there. Lots of newest and uh, kayakers too. So <laughs> in our budget range. <laughs> right. Yeah, basically. <laughs> stretch, stretch budget. Um, <laughs> but so that brings us, so the reason we brought you on uh, to talk today actually is, is um, so you have this paper that's coming out in the Journal of Great Lakes Research called uh, Drawing on uh, Anishinaabeg Knowledge to Protect Water. And um, so this came out and it really struck my interest um, because it's just what you're talking about. So you, the indigenous peoples, the the White River, uh, White Fish River First Nation, excuse me, um, has been there for for thousands of years. But but um, they have a the, but the area had to come up with a water protection plan for some reason, right? And and it seems like they completely excluded uh, the First Nations. Is that right? Do you want to give us a little background on the Sudbury Water Protection uh, Plan process, and then we can go from there? Well, we'd have to go back to 2002 when. Um, there was a small community in southwestern Ontario called Walkerton. And what happened there was um, their water treatment plant wasn't operating correctly. Um, and seven people ended up dying and over 2000 people got sick from the uh, oh, no. E. coli basically in the water. So it was a, it was, you know, obviously a, a big tragedy. And um, following that there was a provincial inquiry and actually, um, uh, one of the provincial indigenous lobby groups um, 
they they made a submission as part of the inquiry. And actually, my sister, Dr. Deborah McGregor, was part of that uh, submission to the to the Walkerton inquiry. But essentially, what came out of it is that you know um, there needs to be better guidelines and regulations around uh, safe drinking water. And in 2000, and I think it was um, six, the province came out with the Clean Water Act. And part of that Clean Water Act was having these uh, planning areas, these uh, where you they could develop these source water protection plans. And so there's 19 in Ontario. Um, and so the one that geographically closest to my community is uh, the Sudbury, the Sudbury one. And they do have, um, or they did have two First Nations as part of that um, planning process. So there's two communities very close to the city of Sudbury. There's a Tikmekshing and Anishinaabek, and there's Wanapate First Nation. But I'm not exactly sure why Whitefish River First Nation was not involved in that pro- planning process. It could have been, so there's, I have a couple of theories myself about why this happened. Um, one is if, you know, if you're looking strictly on a map, you wouldn't necessarily think that Whitefish River First Nation, they probably looked at the reserve boundaries and said, oh, well, it's not going through the reserve at all. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't apply mm-hmm. to them. Even though it's the Whitefish River watershed was one of the watersheds that they looked at and were called Whitefish River First Nation. I mean, it's right there in the name, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's there in the name. And, you know, from our perspective, um, you know, our traditional territory extends well beyond the reserve boundaries, mm-hmm. you know, and in the past, we've had um, actually some land claims that have come through and maybe they were, they just weren't showing up on the maps yet. And, you know, one arm of the government often does not talk to the other arm of the government, right? So they may re- maybe were just not aware of, of it. The other thing, uh, like my theory, is that the community might have been invited to be part of it, but it was kind of like maybe got lost in all the other, you know, information that comes into the community. Cause we're not only dealing with like local matters here, like the, the local government doesn't just deal with local matters. You are often dealing with provincial and national and international issues. Right. So it's, mm-hmm. um, and we don't have like a hundred people working for the first nation. Right. Right. <laughs> right? So it, it might've just got lost that way. Or the other thing I think um, people often think about, too, is um, when they're considering whether to be involved in these types of processes, is whether um, the process will impact on Aboriginal and treaty rights. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of reasons why it couldn't have, might not have happened. So because you weren't included in that first set of discussions, you decided to do your own thing. That's right. So what what did that look like? How did that come about? One of the very interesting things about my community is we have very um, strong and uh, passionate and educated people who uh, work here, who are from here, who are who work here. There is people within the the administration who felt strongly about this and were able to access funds in order to do this work. I think our community is quite unique. We have a lot of very well-educated people in my community. And um, yeah, so just wanting to ensure that the waters that are around our community are protected because we're, I think, because water, we're really surrounded by water. We have, um, Mm -hmm. that means we're vulnerable to 
any contamination that happens, right? And if that, you know, if there's like a devastating whatever spill, it will have a direct impact. So what is the actual process? Like I'm thinking, so we work in extension and so we get a lot of stakeholder groups together and it always involves sticky dots. Uh, so when you all gathered <laughs> to, to, to try to develop this protection plan, was it a sticky dot situation or, or a series? I mean, how did that work exactly? Yeah, there is a number of different ways that um, the uh, input was got from community members. So there was interviews, there was, you know, focus groups, if you will, there was um community meetings where there was, you know, maps up on the wall and people were asked to say, like, how did you, you know, what what activities were you doing and um, related to water? So there's just a number of different ways. Um, we also, I think probably what's different than your sticky dot process, too, <laughs> is that um, ceremony was part of this whole process. So um, and that's, you know, what we do. We do as Anishinaabek people is um, ceremony is part of our lives. And so I know that they had um, at least one water walk as part of this. And they actually, you know, they got um, the elementary school kids involved, the daycare kids (laughs) involved. So um, I would say that um, information was gathered in different ways, ways that appealed to people. I I remember there was like this one community meeting and um, it was around the fall time, so around fall harvest. And so we had like deer meat and moose meat and wild rice and things like that, right? So lots of people will come out to a feast, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so that I think um, knowing how to reach people is um, really important. And so we had, you know, a young uh, community researcher in training to, um, you know, to do this kind of on the ground work because it's a lot of work, right? You know, You know how how busy these things can be. So it was a real community effort. I'm not too familiar with water walks, and I'm guessing that many of our listeners aren't either. Or I guess I have two questions. Are there many water walks involved with doing a water protection anything? And what is a water walk? What, is that, what does that look like? I'm glad you asked that question. I, would, I was I'm just like talking away like, I, <laughs> like you would know. So um and I'm not even sure how long ago this was, but you can probably Google her. Her name was uh, Josephine Mendam, and she actually passed away a couple of years ago. But she was the one who initiated these uh, called water walks. And she initiated these walks, um, and she walked around each of the Great Lakes of, over a course of years. So like one one year she would do one lake, and one year she would do another lake. I think one year they did, they walked um up the St. Lawrence River. Wow. And there was one year where they came from um, all directions over uh, North America. So essentially the idea is as you're walking along, you're um, praying for the water for it to heal because we know that, you know, because of contamination and other human activities that much of our waters have been contaminated. So it's, it's, um, it's kind of a ceremony. It's, it's about healing and um, as you're walking along, you're actually carrying a pail of a copper pail full of water. Hmm. Yeah. And so and any it's kind of interesting. Anytime you like as you're going along, if you pass like um, like a stream or something like you stop and you would um, offer tobacco to that uh, that stream or that river. And then you continue on. I, I've been part of a couple of them. I'm not going to say I'm like this major water walker, <laughs> but when it's been coming, when it goes by my community, um, I I would 
usually participate and help out carrying the water. That's amazing. And through, so through making the offering, the idea is that it, it uh, shows a respect or, or um, how does the offering inform the process, I guess? <laughs> okay. So um, in, in our culture, um, one of our sacred medicines is tobacco and it's not like, we, we had tobacco a long time ago and not the commercial. Right, right, right. Know, yeah. The commercial the factory, stuff. factory tobacco. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's considered one of our sacred medicines. And when you're offering tobacco, it's, it's actually, it's kind of like you're making, um, you're asking um, that entity, the spirit of that entity for help or for to the creator or God for help. Um, so it's, um, tobacco is really important in Anishinaabek culture. Um, for example, if I was to, if I wanted to um, ask an elder something, or I, I was going to ask them to do a ceremony, I would offer tobacco to them as part of that, as part of the ask. And in fact, I'm going to do that this week. I have, uh, I asked an elder to come and do um, uh, a talk at the the medical school. And so um she said yes, but I'm like, okay, now I got to go and see her to offer the tobacco <laughs> to her. So we're, we've been emailing back and forth to figure out a t- time that works for her. Yeah, so the idea is that the water walks are important because we know that the waters are sick and it's a way to try and help heal them. So then bringing it back to the protection plan. So you have this um, much different compared to how the probably the rest of the Sudbury area did their protection plan, this much different process. And in the result, at the end, you end up with this, this uh, protection. Plan. And so what does that look like or what does that call for? Um, can you describe it to us, I guess? Yeah, I think what's really important about the protection plan is identifies all the different ways that people have have and continue to interact with the water. Um, it talks about our responsibilities to the water. So in Anishinaabek culture, um, water uh, is a women's responsibility. So it's our responsibility to uh, take care of the water. So in ceremonies, it's women who do the water ceremonies. Um, so that I think is a real different aspect and I think this whole process was also important for reminding us about our our responsibilities for the water um, <laughs> I think it it was a it also a way to identify you know the risks that are out there to our waters and how those risks can be um, mitigated and you know not only it's not only external threats but the, you know internal threats right so um, you know, we have a highway running through our community. Um, if there was like a diesel truck that whatever flipped over, like that, that's an issue, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, identifying those, those threats and how to mitigate them, I think is part of the, is part of that, um, community, uh, protection plan. And it's not just, um, I think it's a little different too. It's not just about, you know, ensuring that the water is going to be safe for humans to consume. But it's also about, you know, we have all these other organisms that rely on the waters too, right? They're just as important as we are in um, 
for protecting the water. So let me, so now, so the Sudbury plan, you're covered under the greater area plan as well, I would assume the waters are, or are they, are they not, or are they, do you know? You know, I, there is, what I find odd too is like that there's not a, like a Manitoulin plan, mm-hmm. which to me would make sense, but I'm, so I'm not sure exactly why that didn't happen. It's lost to the sands of time, I suppose. Um, but, but so, so what, uh, I guess, so looking from the outside though, so what, why does the separate planning process matter? I guess what I'm asking is, is, you know, if a lot of the water is going to be protected, though, maybe not all of it, what, what is, but what you're doing is additive to that, right? Why is that important? Um, that, that get, and that these voices that were excluded or not included, how about that? Maybe they were excluded. Maybe they were just not, you know, active omission, commission. Um, why is it important to bring out these other voices? Do you think? We, as a, a community, we can determine what's important to us for ourselves, right? We don't need, we don't need the province, we don't need the federal government to determine this for us. We, this process was um, a way to for us to determine, you know, um, the importance of water and why we need to protect it for ourselves, for our, for our own purposes, right? And and I think part of these, you know, um, ways that information was gathered was really good because you know that information was shared amongst a number of different community members who might not have you know heard about whatever a spring that was you know located Mm -hmm. in this particular part of the community or or how people um you know used to interact with the water so it's a way to share knowledge within our community that really needs to be um passed on to ensure that, you know, the younger generations know what it was like. So like I grew up in a time when in my household, we didn't have running water. I was the running water. Well, me and my siblings were the running water, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, when you haul water on a daily basis, you don't waste it. Mm -hmm. You do not waste it. Um, So it's just a different way of thinking about water, right? So um, you know, my kids are lucky. They grew up, they never had to haul water like I did. <laughs> um, but important for them to know and understand that, right? Like this water is precious, not to be wasted, not to be, you know, not, not to be frivolous with, right? And I, I think that's a great, a great segue into, I guess, my next question. How can we, how can we bridge that gap between what we've been raised up with in Western ways with that traditional ecological knowledge? Like how, how can we still thrive and I guess better live with the environment around us? I've been thinking a lot about this for the last week or so. That's a really good question. Um, I think, and I think it's hard because, you know, um, the, uh, you know, Anishinaabek worldview about water I think even for maybe even for younger folks, it might be maybe a little bit harder to understand. But I mean, I mean, younger folks in my community, younger people, I think just recognizing that water, water is sacred, like it's it's a sacred entity, that it has, you know, its own life force, that it's um, that it's valuable in and of itself, not because it, you know, gives us drinking water, not because it can be sold, not because it can be contaminated for mines, um, that it's, you know, it's important to have that relationship with water. I talked about the water walks, but there's certain, 
certain times when we might do uh, water ceremonies, like when the water, um, when the ice breaks up, we would do a water ceremony. Um, so praying for that water to heal, I think, is is really, really important. I think we have a responsibility, and that's one of our teachings, is that we have a responsibility to to care for the water, to protect the water, to help heal the waters. So here, think about bridging that gap, and, and maybe this gets us too far afield. If so, we can – that's fine. We can just exit. But if I'm in your position – you're nice and calm and, and, and maybe kind. I, I would be pissed, right? I mean, I mean, like under the doctrine of we were here first, if nothing else. And, and so, so what, you've, what you've just described is a very different way of looking at water, right, um, compared to sort of the, the Western way. I almost said traditional Western, but then you could say, I don't know, traditional, right? Okay, <laughs> compared to uh, on the Western way. At a minimum, most Westerners don't think of water as sacred in that way. Um, we don't think about it at all, frankly. Uh, uh, and, and, and so isn't that enraging that people come and, 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 and push you out and take your, and then they talk about protecting this sacred resource without even consulting you? Like, that would just, I would just walk around mad all of the time, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's not going to be helpful, though, right? I mean, it's, I mean, in some, I guess in some cases it, it could be, right? You know, when you're, um, when you're at those particular tables and hopefully, you know, invited to those tables where they are making decisions about water. But I think that, I've, I don't know, I've been around the block. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing, you know, I've been working for First Nations for at least 30 years now, 30 years. So just got to channel that energy differently. Right. And I don't, you know, I think things are slowly changing, like Western perspectives are slowly changing about, you know, attitudes toward the environment and water and things like that. I think, but I think for ourselves, it's ensuring that we know that these ceremonies um, are important and that we're ensuring that they continue they continue to happen right so teaching so for example we had a I want to I think we had a must have been last spring when we did the water ceremony and so you know I had my sister-in-law and um, she had her little granddaughter with her right so ensuring that these kind of teachings and knowledge and ceremonies are passed down through the generations right so that's to me that's really important I can't control what the federal government does or the provincial government does, but I can control, you know, what happens here in my little territory, right? <laughs> that, and that's what I do. Like, I just, I, I can't, I can't be too focused on that because it's not going to be helpful. Well, this is really interesting and we sure do appreciate you uh, sharing your, your knowledge and, and perspective with us. It's really, really valuable. And I, and we'll put a link to the paper in our show notes. Um, which you can find at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 5454. And uh, we encourage everybody to go check that out. But actually, Laura Lee, that is not why we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason that we invited you on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to ask you two questions. The first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose? <laughs> well, I don't eat breakfast, so I guess I'll have a sandwich at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> sandwich by default. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> And so when I come to visit either um, either the Northern Toronto, Northern Ontario, excuse me, School of Medicine or the Manitoulin Island, where should I go to get a really good sandwich? There's some great places on Manitoulin Island. Um, 
Sugarbush Cafe, I'll say. All right, writing it down now. Sugar, I will arrive in my yacht, and um, <laughs> teach me about the Great Lakes yacht. We'll take it there, uh, and um, <laughs> we'll go up to Sugarbush Cafe. That's wonderful. So, what is a special place in the Great Lakes that you'd like to share with our audience, and what makes that space, what makes that place special? There's a really awesome place called Nyabakung, um, probably about. You can only get there by boat. It's probably about a half hour boat ride from where I'm, where I live. And um, Nyabakung is a sacred mountain. And you park your boat, dock your, park your boat at the bottom of a, of a hill. And it's about a 20, 30 minute climb up the hill. But once you get up there, the view is just spectacular. At one time, um, a mining company wanted to basically mine that mountain oh, to no. uh, to knock it down, and yeah. But um, anyway, we reminded them that it's in our territory and that it's sacred and that it's not to be mined. Anyway, it's still there and it's it's spectacular. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Laura Lee McGregor, who is uh, let me get it right, who is an assistant professor of Indigenous health at the Northern Ontario. School of Medicine. Thank you for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Well, that was a fascinating interview, a fascinating woman on a really yes, complicated was. issue. And, and, you know, we, we try to have Indigenous people uh, uh, on as often as we can on Teach Me About the Great Lakes. And I'm always just, I'm always amazed that they really, they don't, don't just walk around pissed off. Like, that's what I would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's so difficult, sort of the hand that they've been dealt, mm-hmm. that we dealt them. And I, I like how she said, like, you, you do walk around pissed off for a little bit, but then you channel that energy into protecting the area. Yeah, that's more productive, but, you know, (laughs) (laughs) sounds good. Excellent. Uh, Great. Well, anything cool going on in your neck of the woods? Uh, What are you what are you working on these days? We've got Freedom Seekers. What else is happening? Are we about to? I'm actually about to go on a field trip with a local high school or I guess not local to me, local to us. But with a high school um, in northwest Indiana, we're going to go on a field trip and do water quality monitoring with a group of high school students so that they can have a better connection to the Great Lakes. Um, Lake Michigan is right in their backyards. And from what the teacher has said, most of most, if not all of these students have never been to the lake. So they don't have that appreciation that we do um, and just getting them connected, doing some hands-on experiments and follow up and data, just learning the scientific method and, I'm pumped. <laughs> this is where I'm putting my passion and my energy. Oh, well, that's awesome. Anywhere you're putting your passion and energy to uh, is worth putting passion and energy to. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, you hear the difference, right, between, I mean, I don't want to be flippant, so take this in the spirit. I mean it, but like you have uh, the guests we just spoke with talking about how the water is sacred. And then on the other hand, you have kids who have not ever even been to the lake, the amazing freshwater resource mm-hmm. right there. And so it's just very different. Yeah. Well, that is super fantastic. I can't wait to hear how that goes. Um, good. Well, let's, uh, do the thing. If I can find a thing. There it is. Boom. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant. 
We encourage you to check out the great work we do at iicgrant.org and at ILINCGrant on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Carolyn Foley, Megan Gunn, and Rini Miles. Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport. The show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, and I encourage you to check out her work at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline at 765-496-IISG. You can follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. Thanks for listening and keep grading those lakes. Did it, did it, did it.